of you picked St. Peter's to go this far, huh? You got one guy in the back? that He's lying. <laughs> We're in church, dude. Come on. Um, how many Purdue fans do we have here? Gosh, I'm really sorry, guys. I know it was tough the other night, but what a miracle. I mean, what an incredible story. Like, if those guys go all the way, wouldn't that be something? I found myself a while back in... Um, in an internet wormhole, do you ever find yourself in these? Like, you know, you're, I was doing some research for something I was writing, and you know how, I don't know, maybe like you're out there looking for reviews on mattresses, and then you end up an hour later for some reason reading articles on why nobody's watching the Oscars anymore. It's kind of what happened to me. And don't ask me why, but the wormhole that I found myself in had to do with famous last words. And I don't know why, it just did, landed there, famous last words. You're familiar with the expression, right? You're familiar with the expression, right? There's going to be a couple points in the sermon where I need you to laugh, and so I want you to be with me here, okay? Um, Hadn't really occurred to me until then all of the varieties of ways that that expression was used. For instance, sometimes it's used to refer to a wildly inaccurate prediction. You know, they'll say famous last words. Like back in 1962... A recording label called Decca Recording Company wrote a rejection letter to a band that said, we don't like your music, and guitar music is on its way out. The band was the Beatles. And so you would say famous last words, right? Okay. Expression can also refer to cocky things people said just before an accident. Now, I'm just going to signal, here comes something funny. (laughs) First service people aren't very smart, and so this went over their heads. But you guys are going to get it. So famous last words is a way that you can also, you know, refer to cocky things that people say just before an accident, like when a husband who's replacing a light fixture, he replies to his wife, yes, I turned the power off. What do you take me for, an idiot? (laughs) You see, you you got it, how that worked. I mean, he, anyway. Uh, The way the expression is used that I was most interested interested in is when it's used to record the last words of a dying person. For instance, the writer T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper one word as he died. Valerie was the name of his wife. Sir Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all. And according to Steve Jobs' sister Mona, the Apple founder's last words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Well, last week we began a series called The Seven Sayings of the Cross in which we're looking at the most profound, most meaningful last words ever uttered. The seven things that Jesus said as he died on the cross. And we've been looking at these seven sayings on the cross in an attempt to prepare us for Good Friday and then also for Easter. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me in it to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the pew racks in front of you. I don't care whether you use an old school Bible, a new school Bible, but I think you should bring one to church, and I think you ought to bring one that you can quickly take notes on so that you can refer to it later on. The Jewish leaders, let me just set the context, the Jewish leaders have conspired to accuse Jesus of insurrection against the crown of Rome. And the Roman authorities have willingly cooperated with their plot by ordering Jesus to be crucified. Two others are being crucified with Jesus. 
Luke tells us in chapter 23 that they're both criminals, though we don't know anything about their crimes. These two were hung on crosses on Jesus' left and on his right with Jesus in the middle, which was the position reserved by the Romans for the most vile of the three being crucified. Let's start reading at verse 39, chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then here are the second set of words of Jesus on the cross. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think we should take a moment and remind ourselves here before we go any further that the events surrounding the death of Christ were not an accident, not the handing over of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders, not the order of Pontius Pilate to have him crucified, not even the fact that he was crucified between two criminals 700 years before this. God had declared through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah as if it had already happened He said he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Can you imagine how unlikely that must have sounded to the people who first heard that? That the Holy One of God would be numbered with the unholy? That the very one whose finger had inscribed on the tablets of stone the Mosaic law would be assigned a place among the lawless, that the Son of God would be executed with criminals? Can you imagine how shocking that must have sounded? Yet all of it came to pass, just as God had decreed from eternity past. None of this is an accident. God never acts arbitrarily. All of human history had been moving toward this moment and all of human history since looks back upon that moment. So I do, I want to just take a couple of moments here and I want to think a little bit about these two criminals hanging on either side of Jesus before we get to those last, that second set of Jesus' last words on the cross. These two criminals. And I want to start with a question. Why were they there to begin with? Why were these criminals crucified with Jesus? You ever wondered that? Some of you, uh, if you were here with us in the series on the book of Nehemiah, I quoted a, a famous principle of writing, and it's called Chekhov's Gun. It was from the 19th century Russian playwright Anton Chekhov, very famous quote about writing. And He says, if you say in the first chapter that there's a rifle hanging on the wall in the second or the third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Some of you might remember that. In other words, everything in the story needs to contribute to the story. What's interesting, though, is that from a theological standpoint, these two criminals are unnecessary. Jesus could have died a lone, solitary figure, and his death would still have sufficiently paid for sin. They don't add anything 
to the sufficiency of his sacrifice. So why would God decree from eternity past that they would be hanging there on either side of Jesus as he died? One possibility, one possibility is that their presence demonstrates the depths of shame into which Christ descended for us. That's one possibility. The depths of shame into which Christ descended for us. Think about it. Think about it like this. The angels who watched his birth must have been shocked by the depths to which the crown prince of heaven had sunk when he was born into a lowly manger surrounded by the beasts of the field. That alone would have been shocking. But now at his death, he's descended even further, surrounded on either side by the refuse of humanity, thrown out with the trash. And perhaps that's why they were there. Perhaps their presence illustrates the depth of shame to which Christ descended for us. Here's another possibility. Maybe, maybe their presence demonstrates that Jesus was not only rejected by mankind, but despised by mankind. Not just rejected, but hated. You understand, the Bible's very clear about this, by the way. No one is ambivalent about Jesus. The natural inclination of the human heart is to hate Jesus. That's why Jesus stirs up such controversy. In fact, it's, it's why we crucified him. We killed him in the worst way possible. And then to add insult to injury, we showed the world exactly what we thought of him by hanging him between two criminals. I think you would agree with me, that's not ambivalence. We, as a human race, went to great lengths to show Jesus what we thought about him. Maybe that's what it's about. Maybe it demonstrated how much we despise him. Those are just two possibilities. Now, one of the things that I mentioned to you last week was that in order to prepare your heart for Good Friday and for Easter Sunday, maybe it would be a good idea that you take what we talk about here on Sundays and then use it as the basis for your devotional thoughts throughout the week. Maybe you could think more about this. Why, what are some of the other reasons why the criminals might have been hung next to Jesus on the cross? I want to think about these criminals just a little bit more because there's something else about these two men that stand out to me. And that is how similar they are and yet how different their outcomes are. Uh, think about this. They, they were crucified together for the same reason. They've got that in common. They were equally near Christ. Both were suffering acutely. Both were dying. Both were urgently in need of forgiveness. Both of them heard Jesus pray, as we saw last week, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But their response, their responses to Jesus are so different. Why? Have you ever wondered that? Think about this. The first criminal does something that I think many of us are guilty of, probably all of us. He has a test for Jesus. Did you notice this? He has a test for Jesus. It's like, prove yourself by doing what I want you to do and I'll believe. He's, he's heard all about the miracles Jesus has done. He's heard about his teaching. He's heard about his claims. And so he says, here's the test. If you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us. Then I'll believe. Years ago, another church, another city, 
a man scheduled an appointment with me whose name I didn't recognize. I'd never seen him in my church. I didn't know how he had chosen me, how he found out about me, how he landed in my office, but he did. And after a little casual talk, just getting to know one another, he dropped this, this bomb on me. He said, I can't believe in God. I prayed for him to show himself to me that he's real by healing my daughter, and he didn't. She died. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't heal my baby girl. And what do you say to that? What do you say to that? He was deeply hurting. He was angry at God. I've learned over the years that in those situations, people aren't really looking for an answer because intuitively they know that no one has one. All I could do was empathize with the man because I've had the same thought before about other things. I've given God tests like that before, haven't you? I've had some big need, something painful in my own life, something I felt urgent, desperate about, and I prayed, God, show me you're real, relieve my pain, answer my prayer, solve this, it will make me believe in you or at least believe in you more. Who hasn't done that? Haven't you prayed that before? That's where some of you are today. Lord, save my job. I promise you, I'll believe in you. Lord, save my, save my father, save my marriage, save my child. I don't know what it is that you're praying. Do that, then I'll believe you. I certainly didn't say this to that man on that day, but the problem with a test like that is that you're asking God to be something that he isn't and that wouldn't really be good for you if he was. Here's what I mean. What you're asking God to be is your own personal vending machine. You insert the prayer, he dispenses whatever you want. If you think about it, though, the problem is this, that on the one hand, you're praying to the God in heaven who is great enough and powerful enough to do what you want him to do. But on the other hand, you're saying, he must do what I think is best for me in order for me to believe in him, which is to say, you want an all-powerful God who isn't any smarter than you, who isn't any wiser than you, who doesn't have a bigger, broader perspective than you. Imagine if Jesus would have done what this criminal would have wanted him to do. Oh, okay, I'll jump off the cross. I'll get you off the cross too. All hope for humanity would have been lost. You and I wouldn't be in this room this morning. There would have been no forgiveness for sins, no resurrection, no hope for creation, no sending of the Holy Spirit, no eternal life. See, if there's a God in heaven great enough to do what you're asking him to do, he also must be smart enough and wise enough to know how your life should go that is beyond your ability to see. He must be smart enough and wise enough to have a plan for the world greater than your little bitty mind can comprehend. You'll never believe in Christ if you set up a test for him that will prove his reality because to do so instantly makes him less than who he is. It just doesn't work. Second criminal, though, 
responds to Jesus differently, doesn't have a test for him. In fact, he's not even asking to come down off the cross, though I'm certain he would have been glad to if Jesus would have offered. What does he say? Look at it again, verse 40. The other criminal, this one, this one that we're talking about now, rebuked him, the first one. He said, don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. For a long time, when I would read that, I thought that the second criminal was saying, look, dude, we're both criminals. We're being punished for a crime that we deserve to be punished for. This guy hasn't committed a crime. In other words, I, I looked at it as the guy was just speaking strictly from a human justice perspective, but that explanation doesn't really account for what he asks of Jesus at the end there. Now, this man wasn't just talking about human justice. He was talking about divine justice. He's saying, listen, we're sinners. He isn't. We deserve to be on the cross. He doesn't. We deserve to be abandoned by God. He does not. First criminal is hurt and angry. If you're the Messiah, you'll see the injustice in my crucifixion and you'll get me off this cross. Second criminal is hurt too. But he sees that the only one who doesn't belong on the cross is Jesus. And that he could take himself off the cross, Jesus could, but he doesn't. And so the man asks for mercy. Let me, just, let me just mark it off this way. The first criminal approaches Jesus with a prideful test. The second criminal approaches Jesus with a humble request. Remember me so that I can be with you in paradise. You could say it this way. The first criminal sees Christ as a means to an end and the other sees Christ as the end. One says, relieve my suffering and I'll believe and the other says, I'll stick with the suffering that I deserve if I can be with you. Lots and lots of people, lots and lots of people say, say that they believe in Christ and they point to the fact that in moments of desperation they pray. But you know, that's not what believe means. Just that you, in moments of desperation, pray. That's not what it means to believe. When the Bible talks about believing in Christ, it's not talking about the fact that you turn to him because you think he has the power to answer your prayer. Belief is turning to Jesus because you believe you are a sinner and that he can forgive your sins. And that come what may being with him, wherever he leads, is the very best thing that could happen to you. You can't come to Jesus without coming to him through a sense of open-handedness. I don't deserve what I'm asking. That's what it means to believe. And that's why Jesus answers this man's prayer. Well, let's spend the remaining moments here looking at Jesus' answer. And like all of his sayings on the cross, so few words yet packed with such profound meaning. Jesus answered the man, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, very quickly, this isn't where I want to spend the rest of the time, but I do, I do want to do this very quickly. Because I know that so many people who come to City Church come from backgrounds where you've been the recipients of some very uh, destructive theology. I just want to show you that what Jesus says here 
in these few words, dispels four bad points of theology that many of you have been taught. Now, as I said, I want to end on something more practical, but I, I want to cover this real quickly. Just want to list these things very quickly for you. Four bad theologies that Jesus' answer dispels. Here's bad theology number one. It's called sacramentalism. Sacramentalism kind of sounds like a dusty old theological term, doesn't it? Well, the idea behind sacramentalism is that God imparts saving grace to people through the sacraments of the church, things like communion, baptism. But let me ask you something. Which of those sacraments did this criminal to whom Jesus promised paradise participate in? Which one? Not, none, neither. Never took communion, wasn't ever baptized. And yet today, Jesus says, without having been baptized, without ever taking communion, you will be with me in paradise. Bad theology number two, universalism. Universalism is the belief that all people will be saved at the end, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Notice what Jesus says. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, um, the Greek language in which the New Testament is written is much more specific than the English language. When I use the word you, I could just be saying you, as in just you specifically, or I could be saying you, as in y'all, if you're from Texas, or if you're from certain parts of Kentucky, yuns. Not so in the Greek language, though. The Greek language spells the word you differently on the basis of whether it's referring to you singular or you plural. When Jesus says you here, the word is spelled in the singular. Jesus is saying to one criminal, you will be with me in paradise on the basis of that criminal's expression of faith in Christ, the other won't be. Bad theology number three, soul sleep. Soul sleep. If you spend any time in Seventh-day Adventism, you may have been taught this. The idea with soul sleep is that when a person dies, their soul is in a state of unconsciousness until Jesus returns to resurrect people from the dead. So according to this school of theology, if you're a Christ follower and you were to die today and Christ doesn't return for a thousand years, your soul will just sort of sleep until then. Notice again what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And the word translated today is also a very specific word. It means this day as opposed to yesterday or to tomorrow. It's not referring to an era. It's not referring to an epoch. It's just today, not yesterday, not tomorrow. Today you will be with me in paradise. Death for the person who believes in Christ as the one who has the power to forgive my sins isn't something that has to be feared because the last breath you breathe on earth will mark, will mark the first breath you breathe in paradise. Bad theology number four, moralism. Moralism. Depending upon the kind of background you have, you may have been taught that the only way to be saved is to have been a good person throughout your life, to have piled on enough good works throughout the course of your, of your life for God to declare that you've been a good person and that you can be saved. But this guy's been anything but good and moral. Oh, he's, he's a criminal. He's got nothing He's got like no credits to bring to Jesus. He comes empty-handed. What kind of criminal was he? was he? Well, we don't know. Maybe he was a pedophile. Maybe he was a murderer. Maybe he was a thief. 
Maybe a tax cheat, a wife abuser, a dirty policeman, a cop killer, a government employee on the take. We don't know. All we know is that he's a criminal and that he comes to Jesus with empty hands. He doesn't bring morality. He doesn't bring religiosity. He doesn't bring anything else. He comes saying, I ask you for something I know I don't deserve. And it's in the recognition that he doesn't deserve what he's asking for that his faith is expressed. And Jesus promises him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Four bad theologies dispelled by this one sentence. Okay, here's where I want to end. Actually, let me say this. I started the sermon by talking about famous last words, the last words people utter before they die. I told you a story a few moments ago about a man whose daughter had died. And I'm going to close with a story of death, and that's a lot of death for one sermon, but then this passage is about three dying men, so it seems appropriate to me. Before I tell you the story, though, I want you to think about this. I think the two most neglected words in this passage are the words, with me. Jesus could have said to this man, could have said, I tell you the truth, today you will be in paradise. But of course he doesn't, and that's not an accident because all of this has been eternally decreed. No, he's very intentional to say, with me. In the Greek New Testament, here's how the sentence actually reads. It says, I say to you today, with me, you will be in paradise. And here's one of the reasons I think those two words are so significant. Many years ago, I left the job I was in for a number of years after college. I was a territory sales manager for this company. And, uh, and out of the blue, I enrolled in seminary. I tend to do these kind of things where I just, these breakneck changes all of a sudden. Anyway, left, enrolled in seminary. Not long after I enrolled, enrolled in seminary, I landed a job in ministry, my first job in ministry on the staff of a large church in Dallas. And I hadn't been there long when I got a phone call late one night from a woman that Amy and I knew uh, very well. She was a volunteer in, in our church and, and in the program that I ran. And her eight-year-old daughter, uh, excuse me, her eight-year-old granddaughter had just been a car, in a car accident with uh, the little girl's father. And as you can imagine, uh, she was frantic. And she was in enormous agony, this grandmother. And I didn't know how to comfort someone who was grieving. I wasn't, I, I wasn't trained in that. The only crises I knew how to handle were buyers who got skittish at the last minute. That's all I knew how to do. I'd never been so out of place in my entire life. And I'd never felt so frightened, frankly, in my whole life. Like, what do I say? What do I do? I went down to the hospital and sat with the family. Uh, but soon we received word that the little girl had died, eight years old. I tried to comfort her grandmother with the reality that the little girl was in heaven. But the grandmother asked me a question that had never occurred to me before, but that has never left me. She said that she knew her granddaughter was in heaven, but she was worried 
that the little girl was alone and lonely because none of her family were there. And she asked me, Jeff, is she lonely? Only a parent or a grandparent would ask that question, and I was neither at the time. And I wish now that I could have taken her to this passage. Today, Jesus says, you will be with me, with me, in paradise. Oh no, she's not lonely. The first face she saw when she awoke was the face of the one who created her and the one who loved her more than anyone. She's with Jesus. I mentioned last week that one of the names by which Jesus is referred to at his birth is the name Emmanuel. And I said that that name means God with us. And it's fascinating that here it is death. The idea of God with us and us with him appears again as a comfort. If the criminal would have asked Jesus, how could it be possible that I will be with you in paradise? Jesus would have said, because I am here with you now. If I'm with you in your suffering, would I leave you in death? And would I leave you on the other side? You see, whatever you're going through today, if you've believed in Christ, he's with you. Hasn't left you, won't ever forsake you. Some of you think, well, you know, Jeff, there's something, you know, something I've done that is so horrible that he couldn't possibly forgive me. And Jesus says to you, I am with you right now, right now. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whatever you go through, whatever suffering you might experience, whatever you do, Jesus says, I am with you. I will never leave you. Look at the cross. Just look at me on the cross, he says. And if today were by some chance to be your last day, the day you breathe your last, he will be with you through death and you would be with him in paradise today. Reminds me, some of you might remember the old uh, spiritual song. Uh, I'm not going to sing it because <laughs> it would ruin it, but I just, let me read the words. When I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this word, world. Give me Jesus. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you go through tomorrow, you've come to Jesus with a sense of I've got nothing to offer you I deserve nothing be my savior if, you, if, if, if you've come to him with that then know this that there's nothing you will go through that he won't be with you all you have to do is look at him on the cross Just bow with me for prayer feel certain, Lord Jesus, there are people here this morning that feel abandoned. Something they're going through has made them feel wonder. Are you with them? Are you here? Pray that in a way that I cannot, I can't come up with enough eloquent words to 
penetrate their heart, but your spirit can. And I pray that your spirit would take these words of yours at the cross and apply them to the depths of their hearts, comfort them with the reality that you are here, that you are with them. There's nothing that they will go through that you won't be with them. Nothing that they can do that would cause you to not be with them. The great promise of this passage of scripture is that for those who believe in you, who bring nothing to you, but just believe that you have the ability to forgive sins and that ask you for mercy, the great promise is that you'll be with us now and forevermore. And we thank you for that, for those that are here today that may never have come to a place where they've, where they've said, I, I'm a sinner. And maybe it's because they're afraid to do it. Maybe, I don't know, who knows? Maybe, maybe they're afraid you'll reject them. I don't, I don't know. Would you comfort them this morning that you would never reject them? You didn't reject this man on the cross. You won't reject them. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would come to a place that they would say, Lord, I bring you nothing, but I ask you, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. And it's in your name we pray.